Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mary Huang is a psychologist who thinks creatively about what makes humans lead more meaningful lives. She is founder of the mental health organization, The Indigo Project, which I have been a client of myself, and is tearing down the walls of traditional psychology. After her father's death in 2017, Mary turned to art and writing to explore how the darker aspects of life hold the keys to insight and purpose. Losing him was her life-changing moment, which she so beautifully documents in her book, Darkness is Golden, and explores alongside us how we can deal with life's messiness. So Mary, thank you so much for joining today. Of course, pleasure to be here. Thank you. And how have you been the last few weeks? I mean, lockdown's just lifted. Have you been able to spend the time doing anything that you've really missed? To be honest, um, I'm sort of living in lockdown a little bit still. I'm quite a little cautious cat when it comes to venturing in big crowds and outdoors. Um, I'm like a kind of unknown introvert. So despite the (laughs) fact that I have to do like lots of public speaking and stand in front of sometimes hundreds or thousands of people, I actually can't wait to get home and sit on the couch. So it might take me a little while before I'm like at any music festivals or anything. So um, yeah, easy go goes for me it's funny isn't it lockdown in a way is kind of a nice way to be able to reset as well like I'm a bit like you I I'm very outgoing when I'm with people but then I love my own space and doing my own thing I think it's been a massive time for you know resetting for everyone because we've all had to kind of really think about how do we want to live our lives moving forward and I think I think the work, one of the worst things that we can do is actually rush back into life thinking that we're just going to go back into what we were before without taking this opportunity to actually think about, you know, creating something different. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining. And as I said in my intro, I have been a client of the Indigo Project and I've you know, known about you and read your book in the past, way before this episode that we're doing today. But for some of my listeners who might not know who you are and about the Indigo Project, it'd be great if you could give us a bit of a background to like your early psychology days and how it's led you here today. Yeah, well, I didn't know that I was going to become a psychologist. Like some people I speak to like knew that they were going to be psychologists when they were 12 years old. But I think (laughs) I sort of fell into it because um, just of my natural curiosity and because, you know, in my uh, formative years, my parents really, really wanted me to become a medical doctor. So that was going to be my life moving forward. And I think it was in year 12, my final year of school, that I decided that I didn't want to do it anymore and absolutely broke their hearts and their dreams and you know something that they had wished for me since I had literally been born so it was a big disappointment for them but I think uh probably one of the first steps towards actually acknowledging my own needs and my own wants which is very difficult when you grow up in a uh, you know an, an Asian family that is very very strict on you know stability and security and and going to university and and all those sorts of things so you know when I went into university I think I chose psychology because 
Um, I was curious. I was curious about people. I um, loved making cups of tea for friends and chatting to them about their lives. And I never really went that super straight path through life. I was always uh, experimenting and curious about um, how I could do things a little bit differently. And I think psychology offered me the opportunity to, to understand not only a little bit more about myself, but um, to understand what makes life life and what makes life uh, exciting and meaningful and, and really, really difficult sometimes. And I, I think I needed uh, a little bit of uh, an understanding because I think I'd had, you know, was quite a troubled youth and adult, I would say, like always overthinking and overthinking and overthinking again. And um, I needed Sounds some- like me. <laughs> I just needed some help in uh, calming my mind, I think, and, and, and learning how to heal from my childhood. So it was a, it was a pretty, you know, beautiful adventure through um, psychology. And I started work with street kids um, for the Salvation Army. And that was literally, you know, so such incredible work because you community work, I think, is really where my heart is at, where um, – people are having real struggles and you get to see that just like everyone else, street kids have issues with their relationships, their emotions, and um, we all just want to be seen and heard and understood and, and loved and cared for. And when I thought about starting the Indigo Project, I just thought, you know, we don't, we don't have to see a psychologist because we've got anxiety or depression or, 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 some kind of disorder or diagnoses, we can see a psychologist because we uh, fundamentally need to connect with people over what it means to be human. And um, that was the kind of basis for starting the Indigo Project. Real down-to-earth, friendly therapists who, you know, gotten into a bit of trouble in their own lives and aren't afraid <laughs> to talk about it and, you know, just talking to real humans who, you know, go through the, the ups and downs in life and of this messiness that we call life and um, not afraid to, you know, try to dive into a bit of vulnerability. What I loved about the Indigo Project, when I came across your website and I walked into the building in Surrey Hills, I think this was back in 2019, you can just tell it was so different and it was very different atmosphere to what I've known from previous therapy practices. And I know you have a lot online as well in terms of, you know, the get your shit together course. Everything is just so tailored to a younger generation to help people who we don't want to be embarrassed about going to therapy. And I think you've built this amazing kind of community where people are even sharing on like their social media that they go like this is you're creating a, a new pathway to people being comfortable talking about it. Absolutely. I think psychology and therapy has been, um, very much, um, you know, everyone's skeleton in the closet or little private, little dirty secret that you don't want to tell anyone. But I think that if we're truly going to, um, shift the nature of society and to, um, to really hold true this fundamental part of, you know, living that we have to connect and to connect we need to be vulnerable, then we have to just rip down the walls of, 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 you know, this, this practice of therapy and to say, you know, I'm proud of, um, talking about my life. 
um, the good and the bad and the messy and uh, to encourage people that it's okay because really when we do talk about it, it's such a incredible, beautiful, uplifting, connective activity and it's fundamental to life. Like we talk and communicate all day, every day. So let's talk about stuff that's real instead of, um, I don't know, how's the weather and what shoes and bags did you buy last week? (laughs) Much more meaningful and deep conversations. And I think it does take, you know, a certain amount of courage to then feel ready to go to therapy. And as as we were talking before we started recording, I was telling you how I did come to the Indigo Project, but I actually only did a few sessions. And the reason why was because I was scared to really delve in there. And do you find that a lot of your clients or people that you've met in your career do that? Absolutely. I mean, I've been seeing my therapist for over 10 years and sometimes I still get afraid of going into therapy because I think, what is going to happen today and what blind spot <laughs> is going to come out yeah. of the, you know, what bat is coming out of the cave today. <laughs> so it's completely normal. I think vulnerability is something, although, you know, essential, it doesn't necessarily mean, mean you know, it gets easier. It's just something that um, we do because, you know, feeling uncomfortable is a part of life and, um it's something that we uh, must try to 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 just show up for and lean into, and and I completely understand. You know, people coming into therapy for the first time, I think it it can take months or years for before people walk in through the door or book an appointment. And um, I I get it, yeah. And just to build context for that as well for the people listening, it it wasn't anything negative about the Indigo Project. It was actually more so that your psychologist had actually brought out more things that I'd never thought that would be like she uncovered a lot of deep dark secrets that I definitely hadn't experienced before and being someone new to Sydney I knew how exhausting it was going to be and covering those but now over the last few years I think through the podcast I've been able to do that and um Mary, I think what is really interesting in your book, you say a lot about how it's so important to give our emotions the space and to feel them and that how a lot of times we suppress our emotions and then they can come back to haunt us. That's definitely something I've experienced and I wanted to explore that with you and say, like, why is it that that happens? Well, um, that happens to me too, just so, <laughs> just so you know, psychologists aren't like perfect with dealing with their emotions as well. It's a very human tendency to want to run away from pain and to kind of seek pleasure or to be in a more comfortable position. And we do avoid pain because, uh, you know, it, I guess at the essence of it, it is this evolutionary kind of mechanism telling us you know to get away from something and or something is not right but when it comes to emotional pain I think that it's it's you know it's a little bit different from physical pain um where we you know we need to we need to pay attention and I think we fail to pay attention because discomfort is just so difficult for us to deal with and when we look at the science of 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 sitting with emotions and sitting with the full spectrum of emotions there's so much data and research into this um i guess what we call a term called emo emo diversity and it means that when we kind of you know like eat all the colors of the vegetables or when we 
you know, taste all the different emotions that, um, you know, are, exist to us, we actually have better el- outcomes for our mental health and our physical health. So not only are we feeling better because we're mm. kind of ironically also feeling worse sometimes when we're not feeling good, um, we also, you know, get less, you know, we go to the doctor less. So we're actually improving our immune system and, you know, getting less, uh, less sick. And it's because we're not suppressing our emotions. So even though we try to run away from our emotions as we all do, and we're all very, very clever at coping with our emotions in lots of different ways and eating them and watching Netflix through them and <laughs> all sorts of things. Um, they do have a tendency to, um, to still be felt and also when we chronically suppress them, they actually, uh, you know, kind of rebound even harder. So we end up even more unhappy than we had sort of set out to be in the first place. So, you know, sometimes we've got to shift the perspective on, on um, you know, feeling bad means that I'm not moving forward in life. Feeling bad means like I'm in the dumps and I'm just going backwards. You know, sometimes we have to recognize that that feeling bad is like a pathway to also feeling differently and also, you know, really, really connecting with ourselves in a very, very sacred and, and important way. Yeah. I, there's a sentence in your book and it was something, you said something like um, how sometimes the the worst things in life are the things that break you and help you like rebuild in a, in a better way. And I feel like you've been on a bit of a journey like that over the last few years, especially since losing your dad. Absolutely. So I think I was sort of talking about this, concept of uh you know imagine we were these sort of like you know buildings in a way and when we do go through something that is traumatic or or really difficult or or, you know shatters our world in some way it kind of shatters a lot of our beliefs about how we see the world and other people and how we see ourselves and although that's very scary and difficult because you can feel like you're depressed or in a void or Mm. uh, in no man's land what it actually does it does allow us to you know build from the foundation up again which means that we can examine those beliefs that really didn't serve us and to see if we can replace them with beliefs that are you know really are more aligned to our values because as we move through life we have taken on so many values from our parents and our culture and our society and sometimes you know we've taken them on and we're just living these super routine I would say like sleepwalking through life kind of lives where we're not super conscious of of what we're doing and why we're doing and why we're feeling what we're feeling. And I think that's one of the greatest sad things about life is that, you know, we can go through life, not really living it. And I could, I can definitely attest to what that might feel like, even though a lot of people would look at my life in the last 10 years and think, wow, you've just achieved a lot and you're very successful and you've created this super progressive company there was times in, you know, in the last five to 10 years where I was probably at my most unhappy as well, because I had, um, you know, put myself, uh, at the bottom of the heap and and put a lot of other people's needs, you know, much further ahead of mine. And I think when my father passed away, it, you know, over time, you know, really, really forced me to think about if, if this is how I wanted to live my life. And, you know, if I was at the end of my life, is this something that I would be proud of you know if I looked back on my life would I be satisfied with with how I lived it and how I loved myself and I I think I could say in many many ways that um I really wasn't taking care of myself as much as I was caring for others and 
And that was a very difficult sort of wake up call for me. Sounds like you had such a big period of reflection. And I do also just want to say that I am so sorry that you lost your dad. I know just exactly what it feels like to lose a parent. And you write in your book how even though you knew he was going to pass away for like the last 12 months, nothing could have prepared you for the way that it felt. And I wondered if you would be okay with sharing with my listeners, like what that experience was like for you and and what how did it change you it for the better? I think initially it was it was such a big shock that um, I think like you, it was really difficult for me to face straight up. And I can kind of look back and see my tendency to be like, everything's fine. And yes, like we had this incredible, you know, ceremony, which helped me to heal from it. And I really did initially try to wrap a big, giant, pretty bow around it and, and make it kind of shiny, which was probably like such a huge warning sign that it was like really eating at me much, much deeper. And I think it's, it's been, you know, three, four years since he's passed away now. And I, and I still think I'm unraveling so much of um, the impact of what has actually happened. So for anyone who has lost someone, you know, deep and close to them, you know, the, the, (laughs) I, I don't think we could ever put a time limit on, on how that process unfolds because, it, it is a fundamental shift um, and a, a huge transformational pathway. And, and for myself, I there was points where I think I just pretty much crashed and burned because when you do grieve, you I think I I think I like to illustrate it like this: like if your whole life li- you know existed you know in a house, for example, or your your likes and your dislikes and, and, and your values and all the things that you did and all your friends. And then I think when you start really grieving you, your the life that was once a house is kind of like now, like a room and you are going through this kind of immense pain, but sort of like having to decide what fits into the room. So like what friends are going to come on this journey with me? Um, what am I going to do for work now? Like each and every item of this huge, you know, kaleidoscope of your life is now being sort of whittled down into some very serious decisions about what is meaningful and what is important. And I think those, those questions take a long time to answer because you're initially um, probably, you know, if anyone is like me and you, we, we, we might just try to, you know, avoid feeling bad for as long as we can. And but then we realize, you know, that feeling what we're feeling is a really important way for us to connect with ourselves and have compassion for ourselves and then understand what our needs are and all the, you know, crazy beautiful things that come from that that wisdom that comes from that better you know trying to fit your life into a much smaller space is it's kind of like um decluttering on like a beyond Marie Kondo style it's <laughs> <laughs> just like you ain't got nothing on Marie Marie <laughs> <laughs> and what was it that so you said that it actually you know with it being such a it's a tragic loss isn't it like losing your dad is such a a big life-changing moment but you say how it also really did become something that helped you for the better and yes it helped declutter a lot of things in your life but what else did it do do you think that like it's helped change your personality or the way that you deal with things absolutely I think I had to really step into a place where um I had to decide my value 
in the face of uh, what I did and I had to sort of decouple my sense of self-worth from my achievements and, and what I did for others, which is pretty huge, you know, to try to find people say a place of self-love, but it's, it, this is like loving yourself despite being at your lowest and, and, you know, thinking about just not having the validation that you do in your life at all. So um, I had to think very hard about my career and whether it was sustainable or not, because um, I realized that when grief took up a lot of space, in that sort of room of mine, um, I didn't have a lot of energy to give to others and it kind of made me yeah. kind of force myself, you know, forced to choose myself, but it was very painful because I thought that people would be upset at me. I thought I would be disappointing others. Like people have just known me to be like such a huge giver and a yes person and very accommodating that the thought of like having to disappoint people was actually kind of hitting on a huge, you know, wound of mine where, um, I definitely had, um, uh, I guess made a relationship between what I do and my identity and being liked in the world. And, and that all went to shit very quick. <laughs> do you think you felt a lot of pressure because you are a psychologist, you're a leader of a mental health organization? Did you feel like I should be good at dealing with this? And if I don't, then I'm a failure. Is that what you thought of yourself? Yeah. I, I think the fact that it sort of like in my mind, like dragged on for so long. Like I just thought, whoa, like this is, this is not like, you know, someone came in to see me about grief. I was like, it's going to take you three years plus, <laughs> you know, probably like, I just, I just thought there was many, many times where I thought, you know, I should be over this by now. And, um, you know, I should be feeling a lot better now and I'm doing everything that I can. And I just think that, um, such a deep transformation sometimes people call it like a dark night of the soul sort of journey where it's like this hero's journey through like the darkest parts of yourself and then you know hopefully into the light at some point I, I still feel like I'm you know at at some tail end of it because there's not only do I have to go through the internal realizations but then I have to start setting boundaries with people and boundaries with how I work and and actually putting into play what a sustainable healthy life yeah. looks like for me and that's not easy when you've been going faster than a bullet train <laughs> and trying to slow down and, and turn into a little you know riding a bicycle through the beautiful streets like it doesn't it, it's very difficult to slow me down yeah and is that so you mentioned in your book about how you had your breakdown as you were writing was that because it all just got too much like you were having to write a book to help others but also grieving at the same time yes absolutely I just realized like how much pressure I put on myself so my therapist always said to me you know when someone passes away in your life a lot of people focus on you know missing that person and that you know the person's not here anymore and like your relationship with them and he said you know, that is part of it, but there's this like huge other part where it, this is about all the other grief in your life that you haven't faced yet, whether that's a grief in your childhood, grief in the relationships of relationships that have ended, uh, friendships that have ended, jobs and dreams that have been dashed and all parts of your life where you perhaps haven't, um, you know, uh, for whatever reason, being able to face the pain of, of a trend, a huge transition in your life. And I was like, 
oh my goodness, this is... Can we close the door? <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it true. really is. <laughs> I'm also really interested, so you said at the start of um, our chat that, you know, your relationship with your mum and dad was obviously maybe quite difficult at times because they had a lot of um, ideas about what they wanted you to be. Is there, in like Asian culture, what is grief like? And is, is there different ways that grief is dealt with say because I know you're from Vietnam like what's it like and and have you found it different to like what it's like in Australia yes there's there's definitely um some market contrast and I think lots of parts of Asia are becoming uh, a little bit too westernized which um taking on a western mentality towards death I think can be a little bit of a dangerous thing because in Asian culture for example for my father we had you know, we had ceremonies over weeks and months. So um, the concept of, you know, going to a funeral for a few hours and trying to pay your respects is is really, you know, kind of foreign to us unless you, you know, you're an Asian family that's living in maybe in Australia and, and, and very westernized. So yeah. we, for example, would, uh, you know, someone would stay with the body for, for three days uh, in like a temple-like place. And when you see a dead body and, and, and really get to, uh, you really face death you're like this is a dead person in front of me this is I'm not hiding you know they're not hiding it from you and um there's lots of prayers and lots of rituals all day to help you to um just to come to terms so when there's days and days of ceremonies and you meet family members and friends of uh, of of your you know relatives you know over such a long period of time you you it's not just this flurry of events where you say goodbye in in you know in an hour or two and then sort of have some food and and then try to deal with your grief when everyone's sort of left afterwards it's this process which i think you know in in the buddhist philosophy for example there are many very clever ways of of helping people to move through the process of grief for example giving back is a huge part of, of the ceremonies and the journey where, you know, we, my mom started doing a lot of community work. She started working with a lot of temples. Um, we were encouraged to, you know, go vegetarian for as long as we could. And that just helped us to become really mindful of ourselves. And we lit candles every day. We said prayers every day, we lit incense every day. And, um, you know, together as a family, I think that was quite healing for us. So there, there is a definite difference in, um, I think, um, I guess I'd say more collective cultures and how they look at yeah. death and, and also, um, you know, how a Western society may just maybe not want to talk about it as much yeah. at, at all. I was going to say, it sounds like that type of ceremony is more like what is needed because you're acknowledging it and you're spending time with it rather than just doing a two-hour funeral and everyone goes to the pub after or something. Like, it's not really enough, is it? It's not. It's not because it's it's such a profound rite of passage that we need to give it a little bit more time than the time that we go to the movies, for example. (laughs) So, you know, there was like one month ceremony, three month ceremonies. There's like ceremonies that we have every year, um, certain things that happen a few years down the track. And I think ritual is an incredibly important part of of healing and helping us to make sense of loss. Um, And it's, it's just, you know, 
I just can't stress enough how important it is when I work with um, my clients who, who are grieving themselves for people to create their own rituals. So whether that be letter writing, you know, writing to, to their loved ones, um, you know, finding a place in nature that they will go back to and make offerings at, um, you know, making a, a meal for them uh, once a week or how often, you know, you can do that is to, truly acknowledge that person and keep them alive in a way in your mind. And I think what that does is for me particularly was that it, it really helped me to, to recognize that, that life is scarce, you know, and that life is precious because we're not going to live forever. I couldn't just put it away in my head and keep going on with life. I was like, do I really want to live like this? Because my dad has passed away and one day, we're all going to die and I'm going to be in that position. And my father and my mother, you know, they worked so hard in their lives. And I, we always, you know, my brothers and sisters just wanted them to enjoy themselves. Just go and enjoy yourself, take a holiday, <laughs> spend some money, buy some clothes. And they, you know, just worked, worked and worked and worked so hard. And I think, you know, it, I think if we're not careful, we, we, we can end up, in a place where we're still very much in the doing mode rather than the living mode. And, um, people do have regrets before they pass away that they, um, didn't see their friends and family enough, um, worked too hard, worked too long, um, didn't choose happiness. And, 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 uh, you know, there is a book called the five regrets of the dying, um, mm-hmm. by Bronnie Ware, which, which talks about these, these um these regrets that that people have as she saw people as a palliative nurse um go through these kind of frames of mind I think it's really interesting that you share that because I feel the same like losing my mum when I was 18 years old has made me have a different perspective on life like I really just want to try and do as much as I can because it sounds a bit morbid but you just never know like what could happen today and what could happen tomorrow and I think for people on the outside who have not experienced a significant loss they can often view it as you know being a bit too cautious or a bit too anxious about things but I think it's so important to know like the value of life and what's really interesting is um, reading your book and I know that you do the death meditation and that you're, you're basically encouraging people to have gratitude in what they have now because at some point we are going to face it could you tell us a bit more about that art that you created yes well um there was a festival called we're all going to die that started in in sydney by you know uh, now a good friend of mine stefan hunt and he really wanted to bring color and music and art to this very hidden topic of death and he's a film director and this incredible creative and he really did such an incredible job of building this festival in this giant warehouse in Sydney and I was commissioned to to do an installation you know a death meditation so I'd spent I think I spent over eight months to a year building on a script um working with my partner who's a composer on the music and really just getting into it and just thinking about how do we give people an experience of something that they have never experienced before and I haven't experienced before and that will ultimately you know not be can't ask anyone (laughs) (laughs) and 
not be this kind of shock factor, like you're going to die. Okay. This is, you know, a scary, you know, kind of experience, but something instead that would help us to understand the scarcity of life, you know, the value of life, the value of ourselves, um, to sort of wake us up to the, the choices and the decisions that we're making. So there's some really fundamental questions, um, in death meditation, that's in the book in this recorded experience where people are really asked to, to consider, you know, if, if your life ended tomorrow, you know, would you be proud of the way that you lived your life? And it's a huge question, you know, and you're just like, Oh, I think I've just been on a bit of a treadmill and, you know, other things that you wish that you could have said or done uh, differently or, or let go of. And I think when you're really asked those tough questions, not with, the perspective that life is endless and that we have weeks and months and years to, you know, let go or say the things or start the, you know, dream job or whatever path in life that, mm. that, that sings to us. Um, it, it, it was a huge wake up call for people. And I think experiencing that through sort of the death of someone else and, and the death of, um, yourself uh, through this experience it, it it really was such a very you know nuanced journey to create for people so you know you go to a death meditation okay you're like okay I'm going to go to a death meditation I'm probably going to die in this but how you lead people to that experience I think needs to be um very thoughtful and considered and to lead people in a place where you know I wanted people to leave the experience um, or, and, and to just want to call their loved ones straight away. And I saw that at the festival um, where people just hugged each other for so long afterwards. It was like these, oh, like, <laughs> uh, like don't let me go sort of hugs and like just so present, you know, it just woke people up and made them present to their lives. And that's priceless, you know, if you have to listen to it, you know, frequently to snap yourself out of this treadmill that you might have been living your life on, then then I think that's what it's there for. I love it. It's so such like a crazy idea, but like so amazing at the same time. Have you only done it once or has it been multiple times? Yeah, so we've we've performed it at um We're All Gonna Die in Sydney and then that that festival went to Melbourne. Um, I've also done it at writers festivals and now people, you know, all around Australia and around the world who buy darkness is golden, um, can just get onto Spotify and listen to, to, um, death meditation as well. So it's, it's really available and free to anyone who, who wants to discover what life could mean yeah. to them. I haven't done it yet, but I should, <laughs> <laughs> I will. And I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> You probably won't so be calling me first, but you Mary <laughs> <laughs> Um So we've talked a lot about the grief, like in terms of losing someone to death, but there's so many other types of grief as well. And we mentioned it just before about, you know, you can also grieve the loss of something that was so important to you, like your career, your health, friendships and relationships. Um you must get a lot of clients that come to you about these kind of topics. And I just want to make any listener that hears this know that their grief is still valid. What kind of um, things do you kind of see your clients coming to you for? And how do you help them kind of make peace with something that hasn't exactly gone, like it's not exactly dead, for example, 
but they've still lost it and they can't get it back. Like, how does someone get over that or get through it? Yeah, I think there's so many... You know, I think the most common example of, of um, a grief in life is, you know, losing a friendship, you know, or or a relationship that that really meant a lot to you. And when you when that happens to you, you definitely feel like um, there's a big hole in your heart. Sometimes you feel like your heart is breaking, and that pain is not only visceral; it's really, really difficult to handle. And I think that we often have these like really funny ways of getting over breakups and friendship losses. Like, well, particularly in the case of breakups, we like go out and like get drunk with our friends and find, try to find, find another man. <laughs> get distracted. So you know, on so many levels, we just, um, you know, try to, pretend that everything is okay and, and, and move on as quickly as possible. But, but what that causes is that we sort of carry a bit of our baggage into the next relationship. And for example, if there was any sort of toxic elements of that relationship where that might've changed our sense of self or belief in ourselves, we can go into the next relationship, you know, a little bit less trusting. We can feel like we're not good enough, not deserving, not open our hearts. And, that's the most common thing that I see is that we carry our stuff into the next relationship. And I'm like, do you still keep, do you want to do that anymore? Like, do you want to be in a different type of relationship? Cause it gets pretty boring after a while, like dating a different person, but kind of dating the same person, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Do you think a lot of it goes back to your concept about the inner child? So a lot of the times people either feel uncomfortable because that thing or that person was really trying to help them feel comfortable with something that they weren't okay with. Well, <laughs> I think this like the inner child is like a huge, huge, you know, discussion. And yeah, let's cover it. I really I think <laughs> there's so many things that can help people if we talk through it. Absolutely. So we often, you know, get into patterns in our lives because of uh, beliefs that are formed in certain relationships in our lives. And often they come down to relationships with our parents and some of those really, you know, first relationships that we've had that have maybe have broken our hearts or, or really left an impact on us. And those, those beliefs may be like, Oh, maybe someone left you or someone didn't, you know, uh, hold space for you when you were upset or disregarded your feelings, or you always had to hold space for their feelings. And, I think when we carry these beliefs into our relationships that I can only be loved if, if I do this thing, which so many of us do, like if I'm like prettier or perfect or nice or do stuff for them or, you know, we just have this stuff that we carry into relationships. And I think, um, you know, it, it just gets, it just gets recurgitated over and over and over and over again. And, and it is such a cliche, but it's, it's true. Sometimes we do date this kind of figure of our parents in a way because we're trying to like prove to them that we're, you know, something, something's different and, and, and often it just doesn't really, we just end up reenacting, you know, these same relationships that we've had in our past. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of self-awareness and, and some work to break through those patterns and to say, you know, back in that situation where you felt unloved or unseen or not worthy or not pretty enough, um, 
can you go back and have compassion for that young person instead of believing that you did need to be prettier or better or, you know, something more to be loved. And that's a, that's a difficult thing for people to recognize because we all have the inner critic, which is like, rah, 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 all the time. And, uh, you know, how do we bring in the voice of wisdom that says your inner critic is going nuts at you, but you know, there's this vulnerability that's, that's there that needs to be seen and to be understood and, and to be recognized and, and for that healing to come from some of these experiences that we just rather not look at again. So do you think that, I mean, you'll know this because you talk to people every single day about it, but is it that a lot of people are trying to look for the thing that's going to fix them, but really they need to fix themselves and the thing, the thing that is like, they're struggling with like that inner child for example you want to have your comfort blanket there totally is it that people are just finding outside factors that are trying to heal something that is never going to work well if you think about it it's like if I have trust issues and I'm in a relationship and I just want that person to like tell me how wonderful I am all the time and like let me know where they are and and that person could be absolutely perfect and like be on the ball with like trying to make me feel as safe and secure as possible. But I think safety is something that yes, although it can be learned in a relationship, it's something that we have to cultivate within ourselves because there's that, what you're alluding to is this difference between like an external validation and an internal validation. And they are completely different things. And this comes down to happiness as well. It's like if we rely on Mm -hmm. happiness outside of ourselves, when shit hits the fan, we don't know how to, you know, uh, be okay with the ups and downs in life because we're always like, well, I'm not making enough money or I'm not doing enough of these things. So I think sometimes we do absolutely get into relationships and into situations which we think are going to somehow heal that wound for us. But ultimately it actually doesn't because we need to be sort of healing it ourselves, which is completely possible. You know, it's, it's, it's about connecting with ourselves. It's, it isn't, it isn't necessarily rocket science. It is nuanced and ongoing for our lives to, to love and to learn how to respect ourselves. But it is, it isn't also like an impossible task either by any means. It just kind of goes back to your the whole purpose of your book, isn't it? That how life is messy and we can't we can't be in control of everything that happens, but it's about how we actually react to things. So we need to learn how to nurture our inner child, nurture the monsters. And you talk a lot about that and how um, even yourself you have these monsters with in terms of your perfectionism and worrying about what other people think. When it comes to these monsters, could you give my listeners a bit of a insight into into what they are? Just because I think that they won't understand what I mean. Absolutely, they're probably thinking, "What are these monsters <laughs> talking about oh, them no. in the first place?" Yeah. Well, I guess the monsters come from this idea that I think you know we all have. I used to think of my therapy room as a portal to the haunted houses that we all have within ourselves and if you think about a haunted house as a young child you think well I just don't want to go in that place because it's absolutely scary Mm. but you know when when we think about the haunted house within ourselves I'm encouraging people to go into all the different rooms that exist 
within themselves and so that they can kind of switch the light on in these rooms they can clean them up they can give them a bit of a tidy and you know then the whole house within themselves can start to be shining and that means that you know a reflection of how you're starting to get more in contact with yourself and not to sort of repress or sort of push down uh, the things that you think are too shameful for you to look at. So the monsters can be things like past experiences that you just don't want to poke a stick at and you just think, gosh, I might just leave that to sort of rattle around in the dust. Give it 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> which is like totally fine. Like some things we don't want to have to face <laughs> all at once and then you know our monsters can be things like our negative feelings which we don't want to feel but when we do learn how to feel them we can actually feel better and feel better about ourselves you know our monsters oh there's just there's just so many different monsters like our inner critic our inner saboteur you know our, you know even our little inner child is it can be a little bit of a monster sometimes too it's very yeah. scary to deal with that in relationships you know just relationships from our past so you know the, the book is sort of structured in a way where each chapter you kind of go into a different you know part of the haunted house and it's all this kind of process of the unfolding of what happens when you go there and you basically look in the mirror with yourself and you learn how to deal and face this monster. And I guess, you know, without spoiling the book at the end, it really is about like having a big party and, 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 and celebrating them because we are who we are and our, we have such depth because of our, uh, of our experiences. And I think, you know, the most incredible, beautiful people that we know in this world and that we often look up to are those that, have worn their hearts on their sleeve, aren't afraid to talk about their experiences, seem to have this, yeah, this depth about them because they've been there and they talk about it and you're like, you're so brave, you're so courageous and and they just have a sense of this kind of worldly person who's lived and loves and had their hearts broken and they would do it again. You know, if, 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 if you ask them to, they would absolutely go through that again and encourage you to do so too. Yeah. I know one of the things that you say is when you don't like kind of face your monsters and you let like the emotions just simmer, that actually a lot of this can then come out as anxiety or other kind of mental health problems. And for me, anxiety plays a massive part in my life. And I know for many other people that have been through a significant loss or some big life-changing event, um, you talk very openly about your own anxiety and I thought it'd be great if you'd be able to share a bit about how you deal with it and how you manage that monster. Yeah, anxiety, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> very, not fun. <clears throat> not fun at all. I've had some really tough, tough, tough years with anxiety where I've woken up with it. I've like been in yoga classes with it. I've, you know, just tried to get through my day with it despite, you know, trying to make friends with it and there's I guess sometimes there's a point you know when you've been dealing with anxiety for a while or not dealing with it maybe that's probably a better way of putting it where mm. it, it really does start to mess with your nervous system and I think uh, as a result you know my skin was really terrible my adrenal I, I was just super fatigued I just wasn't feeling like I could really cope with anything like small things would just be like so overwhelming for me and 
like my, I've just felt like my whole world was sort of crashing around it. And at the same time, I think for those that suffer from anxiety, it's just such a visceral experience where, I don't know, some people have it in their throat or in their chest or in their stomach or in their hands. And it's just, yeah, you know, I really feel for, for us people who, who deal with anxiety. And I, I really don't think that, I think it's so common because I think we all live in a world that is um, very fast paced and, and, and has a lot of expectations on us. So, you know, the first thing I think I would say to people who, who do suffer from anxiety is that I think it is actually very normal for the way that our society is set up and the values that are inherent in society, which, which definitely yeah. do promote competition and doing more and even self-improvement in a way that I find quite toxic, which is like always be better, always be better. And like next thing to improve, I think that's very dangerous and is going to put us in a state of mind where essentially I think anxiety comes down to a place where we don't think that we're enough. And we have a lot of fears about what we have done, what we could have done, what we should have done, and then what we need to do and should do in the future. And it's just like, you can't win. Like, you know, I think it's just a kaleidoscope of just, you know, thoughts that, that um, you just can't seem to get on top of. So for me, anxiety was, was really um, a long journey of, um, of not beating myself up about it. I think, I think I initially was like, I'm a psychologist. I have the tools. I meditate, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or I know how to meditate or, you know, I'm pretty healthy. And I don't think that, I don't think that that's the shaming yourself and beating yourself up about it really gets you anywhere. Uh, No, not at all. No. And I don't think I did realize that my lifestyle um, was a massive contributor to it. So, you know, working late and working long hours, putting a lot of expectation and pressure on myself wasn't good. And, um, so I, I really had to stop <laughs> when it came up for me many, many times during the day. And, uh, I started to learn how to ask it what it needed and, you know, paid attention and, and, said it was okay for it to be there and that I understood because I was like, well, you have been, you know, you're in a pretty tough spot in your life at the moment and I think it's pretty normal that you would be feeling anxious right now. So, you know, that kind of let my... Give yourself a bit of space and say, hey, it's okay that I feel this way. Which a lot of people can't or, or don't know that they can do that because they're trying to fight it and they're trying to say that it's not okay and they just want to get rid of it. And that's so much like I try to explain to people this, these things that we have in our lives that we want to get rid of. We actually, we, we, we need to embrace them and we need to find a way to say, you know, you, this is not happening um, to me. This is happening for me, you know, for a reason. And it was because I needed for me personally, I needed to slow down. I needed to give myself permission to stop, to rest, to like delegate, to set boundaries. Are you good at doing that now? Are you are you doing that? I yeah, better? you know, I'm a lot a lot better <laughs> at it and I I think some of the decisions that I've made about my business, you know, not having a physical space but kind of being online for now is, you know, might not be the kind of ultimate vision that I had for my company, but it definitely is in most alignment to me having a healthy life right now and getting my health back on track. So there, you know, I've definitely had to put some huge boundaries in and uh, some people 
didn't love it and some people really respected it and that was that was really difficult for me but you know I, I think the pain of having to deal with people's disappointment now wasn't as big as the pain of not being there for myself and you know it's kind of like cho- choosing between two kind of pains and I was like okay yeah. <laughs> and actually it's really it shows a big sign of strength being able to make such a massive important decision and I think that's really admirable that you did that yeah I mean I wish sometimes I could just be like I want to change my job and like quit my job and go do something else <laughs> too much pressure on you i just literally have like thousands and thousands i'll have your job people. yeah you can have it seriously i'm not, I'm not a psychologist but i'll try you can, you can have the business <laughs> cool cool that sounds really good awesome so just before we wrap up because i know we've been chatting for a while already what else is there from the indigo projects that my listeners could access like what different courses do you have or things coming up that they could look forward to yeah i think um one of the most fun things um no matter where people are in the world is that they can come to like a listen up sort of sound journey that we stream online every month and um one's coming up on the 31st of October at 6 p.m. Sydney time. And it's basically where you have this um, really immersive music journey for uh, an hour or so. And you're sort of guided through lots and lots of different types of visualizations and getting in your body. And people sort of say it's like a bit like a psychedelic experience without the psychedelics, which is kind of cool. It can be very (laughs) cathartic, very healing. Um, If you haven't been to mine, you should, you should definitely come. No, I haven't. I will. So I can, I, I can send you a, a little pass for that and, and you can experience it that. But um, I think Listen Up online is probably a really, really great way to to very, very quickly understand like how creative you can be within the mental health space and how just closing your eyes and lying down could be one of the best things, you know, for, for your emotional well-being. Um, and then there's also, you know, like get your shit together, online course which is like cheap and effective if you just want to have someone talk you through all these different layers of um how to find more connection with yourself and deal with the crazy little bats from the past and then there's darkness is golden which is the book that people can read and take themselves through and has a little playlist that people can listen to as well I love it. I honestly think it's such an amazing book. And I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing you. I honestly do think it is. And I, I like the way that you take the reader on a journey, like through each of the different rooms and then also be able to pair it with the music. It's very different. Yeah. Uh, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Really. It must have taken you I definitely a burnt few out years for, to write. Yeah, I did. And I, I could see why I probably burnt out during it as well, because I was like, I need to make this perfect. <laughs> But do you know what? I, when I was reading it the other day, I was trying to get some quotes from it and I thought, okay, I'm going to turn the page of ones where I really like some of the sentences. And I kept turning them and I was like, well, my Instagram can't have like just Mary. <laughs> like, I've got about five weeks worth of quotes. <laughs> so yeah. I love it. Definitely love it. I think it's amazing. But thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed our chat so much. I wish I could talk to you every day. It really helped me. <laughs> you could be my personal therapist. <laughs> Maybe you could be mine too. We could be we could yeah. do group therapy together. <laughs> I'd love that. I actually really love the idea of group therapy. Do you do that? I know you have the courses, but do you do like 
small sessions with people not yet well no not yet um but I am in a group myself and I've been in a group for over a year now which is really really special this very um, I could be be in it for the rest of my life maybe but it's a very special you know sort of group where it's uh extremely therapeutic very deep very cathartic uh there's not a lot of you know what did you do on the week there's no what did you do on this on the weekend it's like kind of chart yeah straight into i love it <laughs> i'd be there <laughs> no that's so cool well thank you so much for your time pleasure really appreciate it yeah of course